basically the whole of Israel are hearing the Ten Commandments. It's powerful stuff. Sorry, Exodus chapter 20, 20 verse 4. I want you to remember that when the Ten Commandments were, commandments were given, the whole of the nation heard the voice of God. It says, and God spoke all these words. So it was a mighty moment. And let's see what the Lord has to say. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love, but, I could love the word but in Scripture, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this morning, we are wanting to, in a sense, make an intentional pause because it's important for us to talk sometimes into things that are very prevalent globally in the life of the church and very prevalent in our city. And one of those is the teaching on generational curses. And now this is not something that is new. But for us, we have not actually brought clarity as an eldership on where do we believe we stand on Scripture. And it's really important because in preparing for this morning's preach, I was surprised at how sheltered I certainly have been to a sense of what is actually out there on this teaching. And so for us as elders, you must remember that our charge before Christ primarily, because it's what the church is led from, is to lead from a healthy, sound place of doctrine. And so we want to bring clarity and confidence in what God's Word teaches on this matter. Now, I want you to know that as we talk about these things called generational curses, which I'm going to explain in a moment, we are talking about a teaching within the body of Christ. In other words, those who teach this aspect of, or are convinced of this aspect of generational curses, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Teachers who teach this will believe that the person, a person can only be saved by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They are brothers and sisters. We will be together in heaven one day. Because you see, the teaching on generational curses has got nothing to do with our eternal salvation. That's important this morning. It has to do with how do we as Christians live out our life in terms of our day-to-day -day experience and what is the impact of predecessor's sin on our capacity to thrive in Jesus Christ. And so I want you to know this morning that this teaching is genuine in its efforts to help the Christian enter into the fullness of freedom that is offered in God's Word. It is important, important to remember 
that as a Christian this morning, might I just say this, this is very important, we go through struggles, amen? <laughs> oh yes, come on, you should be up here preaching. The reality is for the Christian, I'm very sorry to say, experience will prove you wrong. That if you think by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you suddenly enter an alternative realm that is not affected by this world, you will soon find that the opposite is true. Not so. We are in a struggle. We are in a fight. And it is the fight of faith. And for us who really want to live for God, it's a big question. We want to know, how do we enter into ever-increasing freedom where we experience what Christ has bought for us on the cross? And so this is not an academic question this morning, might I say. This is not a sort of an opinion of this person says this and this person. No, no. What is at stake is your experience and mine and our ability to enter into the freedom Christ has brought for us on the cross. Amen? I hope that interests you. Because as a Christian, we're not meant to be walking around with all this bondage and baggage as if the world is too much to bear. You know, this kind of sour grape Christian. I had grapefruit for breakfast, lunch, and supper. No, we're called to be rejoicing. We're called to be overcoming. We're called to be entering into what Jesus Christ himself says, abundant life. Not so? And we want it. And instinctively, let me tell you, when you hear the gospel, you know, you know instinctively it is on offer. How can the Son of God die on the cross and it have no impact on your life? How can the Holy Spirit, who has come down from heaven through the blood of Jesus, not make any impact in your life? How can the Christian look the same as the world in which they live in? These are essential questions. And I want to say, in wrestling this, we are not wrestling with an academic question or a sort of aspect of theoretical truth. We are talking about people's lives, their struggles, their hardships, their hurts, and a desire for breakthrough. Now, I ask you today, does that matter to you? Does to me? I want to see you, as do your elders, walking in joy. In actual fact, let me quote you, righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. We want to see you move forward, not get stuck. We want to see you rejoicing and laying hold of the salvation with all that you've got and enjoying the promises of God being yes and amen to you. Enjoying what it means to fulfill the call of God, the good works that he has predestined for you to do. We want to see you enter into all of that. This is not a lecture hall. It's a place where the word of God confronts and meets real life. So, understanding this, I want to unpack a little bit about what do we mean by generational curses, or what is meant by generational curses, put, the, put it that way, for two reasons. One is some of us have heard the teaching, and some of us are going to hear the teaching. And so, here goes. Those who teach generational curses assume the ongoing impact and effect of judgment on the specific, unconfessed, and unrepentant sins of our predecessors. In other words, our father or great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather committed some sin, and it was not dealt with. It was not confessed. It was not repented of. 
And in a sense, there's still a blank space. And so the judgment on that sin is carried down along the bloodline. So if it was Laurie, what was your great-grandfather's name? You know your history quite well. Jimmy. Jimmy. He doesn't sound very old. That sounds too new. I, was hoping, I thought it was Cuthbert or Egbert or Maximilian. <laughs> so, you're not that old. It was James. There we go. That is a royal name. There we go. So, let's say it was Maximilian or Cuthbert, and he commits some terrible sin, and it is not dealt with. What comes by being a descendant of Cuthbert's blood is an accumulation of judgment that is called a curse. And the result of it is this, is that in the courtroom of heaven, there is a legal case against that line or generation. What that means is because of this unresolved sin, Satan, and this is what they teach, I'm not saying we subscribe to it, Satan is able to leverage that legal standpoint before God, that unresolved issue from the past, so that he can bring influence or power or oppression to the life of a believer in that specific unresolved area. And what this results in, I'm going to give you an example in a moment if you're still with me, is that in a certain areas of your life, there is repeated failure. And it's a failure you can sort of trace along the generational lines. So nothing is exempt really from this. It could be poverty. It could be anger. It could be certain sexual sin. It could be certain aspects of, um, it can be virtually anything that is carried down as an accumulation of judgment through the generations. And so what is taught is the way that you recognize a generational curse is by looking for these patterns in you, your father, your grandfather. And based on what patterns you see, you have to break specific kinds of curses in order to be free from that specific area of bondage. Are you all with me so far? Can I see this side? You're all with me so far. Well done. That took me about two days to summarize. (laughs) And so, what's required in this teaching is in order to break this area of bondage, whether that be this area of repeated failure to thrive or uh, blockage or, in a sense, intense temptation that you sort of just give in to all the time, is you have to pray specific prayers of confession, repentance, and renouncing of the enemy in order to break specific kinds of curses. So, there is, generally speaking, specific ground you have to cover in these prayers in order for that specific curse to be broken. So there will be prayers of Freemasonry, renouncing the curse of Freemasonry. Prayers of renouncing unforgiveness or rages or fits of anger. or There are these different prayers for different patterns because there are specific curses that cause those patterns that have to be broken. You still with me? Hey, you guys are good. So, 
Where does this come from? Where do they look for this sort of teaching in Scripture? Well, really, it is predominantly one major text, Exodus chapter 20, verse 46, which I read to you. And it comes through in the operative verse of when it says, You shall not bow, in verse 5, to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And there are a number of parallel passages, Numbers 14, verse 18, Leviticus 26, verse 39 to 42. By the way, these notes are available, so I, I, just relax, those of you who are academic. There are quite, quite a number of parallel passages specifically around the law, and particularly the Ten Commandments. Now, what is our response to this teaching when looking at the overall teaching of Scripture. I just want to stop there and ask a question this morning. Have you ever wondered if there was some aspect or stronghold in your life because you just feel in certain areas of when you're trying to live and please God, you just seem to be stuck? Anybody can relate to that? Let's see this. Anyone can relate to that? Eh? Yes. Good. So when you, when, when you hear this teaching and you apply it to your experience, it kind of makes sense because in some aspects you are going, there are specific things in my life that are different to other people that I struggle with when it comes to sin. So let's look at what the Bible talks about from start to finish oh, in one sermon. Here we go. Where do curses come from in Scripture? It's very important we understand this. Curses come from the origin of sin, which is Genesis chapter 3. And it's important to note who does the cursing. God does the cursing. Who has the power to enact the curse? God does. And it's because of sin. And who were the primary first sinners? And who is it attributed to and his neglect? It's Adam in the Garden of Eden. And in actual fact, if we talk about a generational curse, it does exist. Romans 5 says the generational curse is what happened when Adam fell into sin. And Romans 5 verse 21 says, through the lineage, the bloodline, in other words, all of humanity that comes from Adam sinned. That day he sinned. Romans 5 verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Generational curses well, there is one generational curse that Scripture does hold to, is the fact that the reason why we sin is because our forefather Adam sinned. Now, let me just explain to you why some of you might not like that. The first is this, is that you and I weren't there in the garden, right? So how can this man be my representative and his sin be transferred by being a descendant of Adam to me? Can I point out to you, and it will make sense as we go through this sermon, this Adam was the best of the best that the human race could produce. He came directly from God. Isn't that incredible? He didn't have a mommy or a daddy that was like, what was your mom's name, Lawrence? Muriel. Muriel that is a wonderful name. <laughs> Muriel. He didn't have a Muriel. What was your dad's name, Chrissy? Basil. He didn't have it. You know who his dad was? It was God himself. He was made perfect. 
In other words, the teaching of Paul is this, is that you could not have had a better human being in the world representing you in the Garden of Eden. He had no sin. He had no heritage of sin. There was not even sin in, the, in creation. There was only one option, which was a command that he could not keep. And the teaching is this, if you were in the Garden of Eden, you had the same coming directly from God. You had the same advantages of Adam and Eve. You would do the same thing because it revealed in us a propensity to go our own way when the offer was there. Now I want to say, if that was the best we could produce, Jesus is the best God can produce. I just want to point that out. And so this is what happens. When Adam died, and you might not like it, but I want to ask you today, don't you confirm it in your everyday life? That no matter how hard you try, are you sinless? You might not like it. I might not like it that I've inherited sin. Well, sure. Well, let's say we're, that's wrong. I want to ask you, how are you doing in your perfection lately? Parents? Wives and husbands? Brothers and sisters? You cannot get away from the fact is that we are under this curse of sin. And what it did is, in Romans chapter 6, Paul explains very carefully, it placed us under the dominion, under the power, under the authority of sin and death. And the leader of this realm of authority was Satan himself. Colossians 1 verse 13 says we were, we were captives in the kingdom of darkness. Now, I want you Christians here this morning to think what this means for you prior to Christ. You see, we forget the state we were in before grace found us, before mercy and love found us. And what happened was this, is we were slaves under the rulership, the dominion of this wicked king, Satan, John 14, verse 30. We were born under a curse through the bloodline of Adam, which means all of humanity was under this powerful human curse. And what it produced in us is this. This is very important. Even for the person who desired to have peace with God by trying to please him, couldn't do it. There's a guy in Romans 7 that Paul describes about even anybody here who was born under this curse. You want to please God. Maybe you're trying to find God this morning and you're trying to say, I want to find peace with God. Let me tell you, the world thinks they need peace with all of their wealth, all of their relationships on earth and all of the, the sort of creation aspects. Let me tell you, the problem is we don't have peace with God. Our consciences are stricken day in and day out. Why? Because there's no peace with God. And so what do you do as a human being? You try and be good. You try and say, well, I'm going to do my best so that I can have peace with the one I feel instinctively accountable to. Why is it that you can't get away from the guilt of having hurt your wife or your son or defrauded your boss? It's because, my friend, by nature of your birth, there is this instinct that you know you are accountable to a creator. And so I say to you this morning, what happens for somebody like that? And that might be you. You might be working your way to God to find peace with him. This is what Paul says the experience is like. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. And this is the experience of what it's like to be born under the curse of sin. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
stuck. Does that curse produce personal failure? Yes. Does that curse produce personal hang-ups, personal bondage, personal lack of freedom? Does it produce repetitive cycles of sin? Yes. Because the curse is inherited from Adam and we are under the curse of sin, capital S. Now, Romans 7 verse 25, Paul says, what is the rescue from this state? It's the most beautiful verse after the most agonizing scripture. He says in Romans chapter 7 verse 25, after he's just said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this state? It says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He makes this proclamation of saying, what delivers us from the state of this helplessness? That is what sin is like, my friend. To be born into sin is to be born helpless to its power and passions and desires. So you're not intellectual. You're not as clever as what you think. You think, well, I'll reason my way out to godliness. You can't do it. You find even in your body you're controlled by appetites and desires and longings that drive you to do things you wish you had never had done. Am I describing what it means like to be a human? I think so. And so this morning, Paul says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and what he accomplished for us, we are delivered from this position of helplessness. Now, why can he say that this morning? Because the joy of what we are celebrating in this weekend to come is that the Son of God came and took on flesh. What that means is he took on our weakness. He took on all of our, our, our feelings of vulnerability to the same vulnerability that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden to take and eat of what they were not supposed to. Christ was put in the same example, the same place, the same situation, that he was born like Adam directly from God. He was not under sin. That's very important. He was not under the curse of sin. He wasn't born of Adam. He was born of God. He is called Emmanuel, God with us. And he comes directly from God. Oh, wow. Romans 5 verse 14 says, as a type of the first Adam. When Jesus Christ came into this world, I'll say it as strong as this, he came to start a new human race. A spiritual race that belonged to God. A people of God's own possession, 1 Peter 2 verse 9. And where we were powerless because of the curse of sin, Christ not born under the curse of sin, perfectly achieves the commands of God. Can I point out to you this morning what that means? Please don't just, I hope you read your Bible up to Easter about the death of Jesus Christ. Do you know what is profound about Jesus? That for every second of every minute of every hour of every day, from the first day he was born to the last day he died, he resisted sin. How long have you resisted sin for in your life as a Christian? <laughs> Marina, as a mother, knows maybe two seconds, five seconds. She, and she's godly than I am. I'm normally one second, half a second. I say to you this morning, he was sinless on the day of his birth. He was totally righteous. And Easter's coming up. Why do we make so much of the cross and the resurrection? Because Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. A tree according, is, is a wooden cross. And what Paul is saying is here in Galatians says, guys, 
Guys, the reason why we are delivered from sin and the curse of sin through the cross is because Christ was cursed for us when he was hammered to the cross as our substitute. He became a curse for us. And the wrath, listen to this, the wrath of God upon our forefather Adam and all subsequent generations, God poured out on Jesus in that moment. Oh, it's a plane. I thought there was music coming from heaven for a moment. It's like, this is amazing ambiance suddenly. So Christ took our place, and the curse of sin that we bear, he became. He became. He was cursed on the cross, and the full weight of it fell on him. His life for our death, and that curse is categorical. In actual fact, in the New Testament, it is the closest that we can get to God ever talking about a generational curse. He says, if you're worried about what you inherited from Adam, in the moment on that cross, the weight of all the, listen to my words, all the accumulated judgment, past, present, future, fell on him. Wow. Wow. And what that means now is that it was at this point, we talk about the legality of curses done against us or, or the teachers of generational curses talk about it. It was at this point that Christ disarmed Satan and the legal power he could wield because of sin and death. Christ proved this by rising from the dead, and I'll show you how. Satan couldn't keep Jesus dead legally. There was no court case in heaven that Satan could cry and say, Jesus sinned here, Jesus sinned here. You've got to keep him in the grave. You've got to keep him in the grave. No, the very fact Jesus rose again was that in the courtroom of heaven, he was cleared. And the power of it is, he didn't arise with our sins with him. They were left in the grave. You ever wonder about the power of sin? My friend, it was broken because Christ bore its full weight on his body and then went to the grave. And then before the whole of heaven, he was declared not guilty. And the legal power that Satan had over that sin in that grave was defeated in that moment. The reason why we have a Resurrection Sunday is because it is living proof that Good Friday was acceptable to God as a living sacrifice. That legally in that moment, the power of curse was radically broken. That is why Scripture can say, Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death is we are to walk with the sense of being radically forgiven, radically released, radically redeemed, radically restored. And may I point out to you this morning the joy 
that I love is one little line that we miss is that in that moment, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. You know what would have happened to the priest? They would have gone through all of their rituals of cleansing with the blood of this lamb and the blood of this God, and they would have rocked up in fear and trembling into the holy, into the holy place, and suddenly the curtains open. Suddenly their blood's not necessary anymore. Suddenly they're looking at the presence of God. And they would have looked behind and said, uh, 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 my entire system that I've built my life on to approach God, this covenantal system, is broken because the curse that came through the law was defeated on the cross. I ask you, there are some troublemakers in our city. They are trying to take our precious people in, back into the law. I want to ask you, if the temple curtain was torn, why go back to something that is no longer necessary? Why go back to a system that is declared redundant in Jesus? And so I want to point out the fact that this is no longer a covenantal system only for the Jews. It means anyone can come. Why is it? Oh, goodness, sorry. Anyone can come. I've lost some notes. Lucky you. <laughs> You want to take over, Lawrence? So, I'm going to have to preach from memory. What happens at the point of a believer at their conversion? It is too majestic for words. By faith, by faith, according to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, you are plunged into Jesus. What does that mean? It means whatever happened to Christ happens to you. So he died, and you were placed in him. Your old self died. Where he rose again, you were raised to newness of life, because whatever is Christ is yours. And so when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my friend, it's not a trite little decision you put your hand up to. It's you are given Christ by being baptized into him. And whatever happens to Jesus happens to you. Died, rose again, and he's already in heaven. That's why you're already seated in the heavenly places spiritually. Because what happens to Christ happens to you. And when you come to Jesus, you're coming to have all of him. There's not aspects that you did not receive. You are plunged into the very fullness of Christ. It comes through this. Remember in, the, in the, the day of Passover, here these guys are. They are, are having to, this angel of death is going to pass over. Did they just hide part of their lives under the blood? My friends, the whole of their lives was hidden under the blood. Now, that means if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You were cursed. Christ became cursed for you. His sacrifice is complete and the curse is gone, defeated forever. You are born into a new kingdom with a new ruler over you. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1 verse 13. You became a citizen of heaven. You heard me say Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6. And this is it. You became a descendant of an entirely new bloodline, the blood of Jesus. If anybody asks you, who is your descendant? You say, Jesus. The blood of Jesus becomes your blood. So the implication is this. 
That is why there is nowhere in the New Testament where it talks about teaching on generational curses. And what's fascinating is Jesus never teaches, and I want to be loving here. I want you to feel the weight of glory of what you received in Jesus. And I want you to see how it's applied in Scripture. You know, Jesus had every opportunity to confess the sins of his forefathers. He was a descendant of David. David did a lot of bad stuff, just him. Jesus could have gone and said, let me go to the temple and make atoning sacrifice and repentance for the lineage of these kings that had been so wicked. Ahab, I think of Manasseh, I think about these men that, that ruined God's people through their negligent leadership, of which Christ came from. The second is this, is don't you think Jesus would have applied the teaching of generational curses to his own disciples? They were not a pretty bunch. Who were called the sons of thunder? You know why they were called the sons of thunder? They had anger issues, James and John. Now, he doesn't pull them aside and say, James and John, let's just talk about your daddy. Maybe his daddy was Bethuselah. And let's deal with this anger in your life because it is stopping you from being my disciple. Or what about conceited Peter. I mean, Peter has got the worst foot and mouth disease of all of them. He can pull the Son of God aside and say, Jesus, you shouldn't be saying this. And Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. At this point in your life, he doesn't talk about the previous generational curses that are introducing the past. He just says, at this point that you are right now, Peter, you're confused. One of the things that, that, that in doing reading for this is timidity is considered a generational curse. Now, who was the most timid church leader in Scripture? It was Timothy. And when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy. He doesn't say, just check out your Greek daddy wasn't a God-fearer. His mommy was and his grandmother was. But let's just check your dad's line. Maybe this timidity is coming through the lineage of accumulated judgment upon your ancestors on your dad's side. He doesn't do this. He says, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love, power, and sound mind. There are these moments when even talking about prayer, where if these generational curses were so important in terms of praying these prayers of confession and repentance and asking for, of, of renunciation, don't you think in the, the greatest teaching on prayer we're going to get to the, at the end of this year is Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus teaches on the Lord's Prayer. Not once does he lead anybody through a sort of incantational prayer to bring deliverance for specific curses. He just says, commit yourself to God. Lead me not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one. Furthermore, is when it comes to sins of the flesh, Galatians 5, and they are quite ordinary, fits of rage, sexual promiscuity, idolatry, these things that are attached in the teachings of generational curses, they are simply called works of the flesh under the authority and power of the sanctifying spirit. Galatians 5. My friend, nowhere in the New Testament is there teaching about generational curses as proposed by the modern day teaching. 
Jeff said, well, we can't, I'm hoping one of you asked the question, we can't ignore the Old Testament. We can't ignore it. Some may object and saying, surely the Bible is whole. I agree with you. But even within the Old Testament, the Old Testament points to individuals being culpable for their own sin, not their forefathers. Just two chapters before what I read to you this morning in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 20, it says, The soul whose sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Even within Scripture, there are a bunch of others. Jeremiah 31 verse 29, it says, In those days they shall no longer say, it was offensive to God to say this, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and therefore the children's teeth are on edge. In other words, the children are suffering for the father's decisions. The father's wickedness, they are bearing, in a sense, the judgment of the father's sin. It says in verse 30, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So, and by the way, Jeremiah goes on to preach on the new covenant, which we have. It's altogether greater. So, we want you to feel secure. These past influences have not got spiritual authority over the life of the believer. They do not have legal, spiritual power and authority over the believer. But we will say this. We will say this. This is important. We certainly are influenced by previous generations. Not so? I'm just looking at the two sisters here, Carmen and Camilla. They're sisters. You can look at them, and they look like sisters. What do we believe? We believe, well, there is definitely evidence that we learn behavior from our parents. Oh, Lord, please help Sarah and Elijah. <laughs> Why on earth do you think we have baby dedications? It's because Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Cause the effects of your behavior... Your kids are watching and learning. And let me tell you, if anybody here is a psychologist, or you make your bread and butter from people like me. And I want to say to you this morning that in Scripture, there is parental influence that is honored. David, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was a terrible father. He indulged his boys way too much, and it produced the rape of Tamar as an example, Absalom's rebellion against David. He was a terrible dad. Oh, but don't you think about wonderful Timothy? Moms, be encouraged by this. The heritage of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice <laughs> is he comes to be a man used by God because of the faith passed on by his parents, well, his mom his grandmother. And we also see here, so we believe that there are family traits that come through. I'll, I can give you a few in my own life that have come through thanks to observing those close to me around me. I can also say to you, all of us here in this room, by having fallen parents and grandparents have been deeply impacted by words said to us in our lives. Particularly at young children. At a young age in childhood, many of us here have had deep wounds, deep hurts because of the things said to us, and it has shaped the way we've seen ourselves, the way we've seen the world, and even in a sense, 
the way we see God. And the second thing that we see is the genetic influence. So you've got nurture versus nature. And both are at play. Due to the fallenness of this world caused by the curse of Adam, our bodies are affected by hereditary diseases. And the case for this is that these diseases are not judgment. It says clearly in John chapter 9, when there was a man born blind, born blind, that's the problem. He inherited a gene that was dodgy. And here this guy can't see. And the Jewish people believed in this transmission of sins to the children. And they said, who sinned here? Was it this man or was it his forefathers? And Jesus says, neither. It has come so that God's glory might be shown in this moment. I want to say to you, do you have a hang-up, a disability or some aspect? Let me tell you, God was sovereign over it all. And in His sovereign purpose, through Christ's redemptive power in your life, He can turn it for His glory. So why? Well, I don't have a watch. Oh, my word. Okay. My watch broke. That's a very dangerous thing. So, why believing we are cursed? Why do we as elders need to preach on this? What is the danger? Because can I just say this morning, those who hold to this teaching, their intentions are good. They are good. But why is it that we cannot recommend it? Because it makes you think you are in bondage where you are not. In other words, it makes you feel like a victim. The very real danger is that you blame your own sin and repeated failures on someone else. When in Scripture, it will never let you off the hook, even under the new covenant, is we own our sin. Sure, we've learned sinful behavior, but we have to own it before God. And the risk is, is that we, in a sense, capitulate to dealing with it because we find someone else to blame. The second is this, is the teaching on breaking generational curses offers a quick fix where Scripture doesn't. My friends, this morning, you and I both know that breakthrough 99% of the time is hard won. This teaching claims immediate effortless breakthrough. And this is what makes it appealing. But Scripture's approach to sanctification is an ever-increasing conquering of sinful patterns in our lives that requires effort, training, and ongoing application of the truth. Now, I want to say to you this morning, I believe God can step into a life and bring immediate deliverance from a pattern of thinking, an addiction. We have people in our church that can say, this is how God was. But my friend, that is a gracious act of God. The Lord's Prayer says this. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. By God's mercy, he can choose to step in by the power of the Spirit and speed up a sanctification process in a person's life. But that isn't because it's a breaking of curses. It's really important. It's because the grace of God has said yes to you in that. And if it doesn't come, you need to know that standing up underneath it will be for your benefit and is possible through the power of the Spirit. 
That's the difference. Is you see this generational curse teaching teaches us to be defeated until this certain aspect is broken. No, no, we're the other way around. We say you are victorious, and if God does not deliver you immediately, he will deliver you under the pressure of the temptation or the trial. And the blessing of the temptation trial, it's not that God is, un, is cursing or he is ugly towards us. Don't you know every time God talks about suffering, he always brings in the word glory. Don't you know every time he talks about being trained, he talks about this need to exercise our faith. We grow as our faith gets tested and applied. And we learn about how to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this morning, working out our salvation implies it does require work. We have a fight, and it's the fight of faith. We are in the midst of a war, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Notice the word wrestle, but against principalities and powers, Ephesians 6, verse 12. We are to flee temptation, not bind it. We are to resist the devil, and he will flee. It is through many hardships we must enter the kingdom. That's what Paul says. If you want to share in the glory of Christ, his teaching says, is you must share in his sufferings. If Christ could not experience glory without the cross, how much more will the Christian be called to crucify themselves for the sake of the gospel? Again, we are not victims in the fight. We are on the winning team. Don't you think it's amazing? When Scripture talks about the glory of what we received in Christ, it says, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. No temptation is overtaking that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you notice that Jesus is central to every single one of those scriptures? And you received him the second you came to faith. I ask you today, you might be in some struggle. I know what it is to struggle. To be presented with your weakness. To be presented with a track record that stinks. To be presented before the accuser called Satan who can nitpick the devastating decisions and repetitive actions of a man fallen in sin. And the way, I'm going to have to speed this up really quickly. Satan gets at us is this. I haven't spoken about demonic oppression, but I tell you what. No, no Christian can be demon-possessed, but I can tell you this. Is we can be intimidated by the devil. We can come under the influence of the devil. And what, the way he does it is he tells us things in our minds through repetitive attack, planting of thoughts, patterns that gets us to believe this. I can never change. He does. 
He gets us to believe. That is what a stronghold is, is in our lives we are so caught in the negativity of defeat that there is no hope that we know God is calling for to change. We are captured by fear. We're captured by negativity. We're captured by doubt because he's a liar. He is a liar. And I tell you today, standing under the weight of temptation and in the midst of trial can be one of the hardest things for the believer to do. But you know what the writer of the Hebrews said in Hebrews 12 verse 34? says, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Some of us here know what it's like to have to resist temptation. Some of us had to do it for, how, many, how old are you, Laurie? 59. For 59 years, there's certain things that Lawrence has had to continually resist. Can I say it to you today? No matter how difficult it is, anybody here had any blood vessels pop open in their skin because of the incredible pressure of having to say no to sin? Anybody? When that happens to you, we can chat. That's what God says to me. Matthew, don't be so surprised, my boy, if you don't share or if you share in the same things that Christ had to walk through. Do you know the moment of Easter, I'm going to try and end here. The moment of Easter is this. I believe for Jesus, the breakthrough was not the cross. The breakthrough was the Garden of Gethsemane where he had to wrestle with the will of his flesh. Give me another cup. That's what we pray. I want to drink from this lovely, delicious cup. I want to eat from this fruit. But you are saying, no, that's not the way. I have to choose your way. And let me tell you, it was a supernatural fight because at the end of it, Jesus needed supernatural angels to minister to him because he was so exhausted from resisting what Satan was breathing down his neck. But he did it. And what a victory. He goes through trial after trial after trial, And he faces the cross. He's decided to follow the Father. No turning back, praise the Lord, no turning back. So, this morning, don't let, let me rephrase it. We cannot leave this teaching unclarified because it not only makes you think that you're in bondage to what you're not. It's not only that it promises a quick fix that Scripture doesn't. It can damage your view of the Father. The Father has not cursed you. No, no, He's blessed you in Jesus. He's your loving Father. And it detracts from the sufficiency and the glory of Christ and what He achieved on the cross. My friend, the thought that a historical member of your family was a Freemason could block what Christ powerfully achieved the moment you came to faith in salvation and planted the Spirit in you and gave you promises that were yes and amen. I want to say to you, detracts from the glory of your confidence in Jesus. This curse that could possibly have come to you, is it greater than Christ? Is it overpowering the new creation? Is it overpowering the power of the Spirit that has made you alive in Him? Can it touch you in the very body of Christ? Can it touch you when you sit it in heaven? Is there any way that these curses can come and bring bondage back where Christ has brought freedom? We say no. We say no. We're no longer slaves to some past, present, and future. Oh, I wanted to talk about how we walk in this freedom. I want to say to you, just recognize. We recognize there are patterns that we've inherited through learned behavior and through aspects of society. We've got to recognize that we are fallen. And we've inherited, after our salvation, 
systems of thinking that have to change. That's it. Is we have to learn what we are like, where we are vulnerable. We have to confess and bring those things before God. 1 John 1 verse 9. We don't turn away. We repent. In other words, we change our minds about it according to God's word. And we change our life. Is We introduce things into our lives that enable change. Don't share the bed if you are struggling with sexual relationship outside of marriage. Don't even stay in the same house if necessary. Don't have access to aspects that can cause you to fall. Change the environment as far as the grace of God will allow you. You must turn. Resist. Resist by fleeing or by standing firm. We never bind temptation. You get the heck out. You don't entertain it. And if, it, if you can't escape it, you stand firm in your identity in Christ. You stand firm in who you are according to Scripture. You renew your life daily through fellowship with the Father through the Spirit. You renew your mind through the washing of the Word. You stay sensitive to the leadership of the Spirit on your life. You relate. You get into aspects of people that have access to your life. Small groups of idol. James says, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. We, have, we allow people to have access in our lives. There are sometimes things in our lives that we can't explain or we may need help with. We do this in community. We recall by living from the space of remembering who we are in Jesus. And we rejoice. That is you want it, the last thing you want to hear. If there's one thing you take away from this sermon is we want you to be rejoicing in what you received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You never let Satan come and depress you. You never let him come and intimidate you. You never, you walk tall. You don't have to worry about a past curse that might be blocking your future. No, no, you're a new creation. You've got a new future in Jesus. Your past has been wiped away. You remember your sins no more. You confess, you bring whatever your weakness are before God. You have the power in this moment in Christ to rejoice fully in what you've received by faith. I ask you today, are you rejoicing in Jesus? Or are we grapefruit Christians? I tell you what, what can take him away from you today? Can illness? Can no money in the bank? Can some devastating relationship of people falsely accusing you? Can anybody take Christ away from you? Satan's highest weapon, death, cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. My friend, what can take you away from him? Nothing. Is your child wayward? Are you feeling like a failure in your marriage? Is there divorce? I tell you, can any of that take Christ away from you? No. The joy of the Lord is your strength is we are called to enter into this place of experiencing the wonder and power of what immediately happens the second we come to faith. Therefore now you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Amen. So I want to just read you briefly a statement that we have put together as an elder. On what we have preached on today, we have some who differ with us on this matter. And Steve and Mandy Bass, whom we love and respect, have decided that in order to prevent confusion in the church and to release them to minister according to their conviction in the city, to step down from membership at SPC. We want you to know that Steve and Mandy 
it's Hartzell that they have decided to, but we recognize why. And we also want you to know that we have not been able to cover everything in this sermon, and I'm sure you've got many, many questions. And we really want to invite you to engage with us with them. And so this Wednesday night at 7 p.m., if there's anybody here who wants the safety and security of a small format where you can bring all of your questions and we will do our best to answer, we want to welcome you to do so. And uh, I'd love to pray for us now. Father, this morning we want to thank you for the joy of our salvation. And Lord, we also want to thank you for the blessing of what it means to be in Christ. And Lord, we want to just pray that this would become increasingly real to us as we walk with you, Lord. As we face real life, we pray that the realness of our salvation would influence and bring about an ever-increasing freedom in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our words, we pray. Lord, we also thank you for the life of Stephen Manny, for their many years of faithful service here. And we thank you, Lord, that although they've chosen to step down, we thank you that there's no relational issues, that, Lord, we affirm them as a brother and sister in Christ. We recognize Steve's desire to be fully persuaded and to be released into his full convictions. And so, Lord, we release them and we thank you for them. We love them, Lord. And we pray that, Lord, the gospel in this city would grow and grow and grow, that we would see many people come to this glorious freedom of what we proclaim in Christ. We pray these things in your precious and wonderful name. Amen. Amen.